Today's podcast comes from a program titled The Silencing of God. Dr. Dave Miller looks at how from its beginning, American culture has been friendly towards Christianity. Yet in the last 50 years, forces of humanism, atheism, evolution, liberalism, pluralism, and political correctness have been aggressive in their assault on the Christian religion. Join Dr. Dave Miller as he takes a trip back to the withering roots of America's past. I hold in my hand a number of newspaper clippings. Let me read these to you from the last year. A group of students at Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois say an anti-abortion display featuring crosses is offensive to non-Christians and should be removed. Small towns in Utah that still say short prayers before city government meetings are getting so tired of being harassed by atheists and the like that they are abandoning the time-worn tradition. Staffers for the governor of Michigan removed the phrase, in the year of our Lord, from official state papers, in part because it was deemed insensitive to non-Christians. A district court judge in North Carolina says religious references, including oaths that end, so help me God, should be removed from the courts because not all the people in them now are Christian. Officials in Stanislaus County, California, removed a 40-year-old memorial from public property there because the monument included a cross and might infringe on rules about church-state separation. A flyer promoting a YMCA basketball camp in Bakersfield, California cannot be handed out by teachers in a California school because text on it mentions the organization's Christian principles. The owners of an A&W root beer restaurant in Colorado have been ordered to remove Bible scriptures from the portable sign in front of their restaurant because the phrases offended some folks in the community. School officials in Sarasota County, Florida are pushing a new all-secular holiday calendar for school districts in order to avoid appearing insensitive to people of certain faiths. The latest to go is the traditional Good Friday holiday. Earlier, the school calendar changed the name of the Christmas vacation to winter break. The city attorney in Sparks, Nevada, concerned about official endorsement of religion, forced city employees to cut the word God out of signs around City Hall that previously said, God bless America. Three plaques with biblical scriptures on them posted at lookouts over the Grand Canyon have been removed following letters of concern and complaints from the American Civil Liberties Union. The back and forth over a cross in California's Mojave Desert has reached the point where the National Park Service is forced to put a tarp over the 70-year-old landmark in order to placate an anti-Christian zealot. The ACLU says a Bible encased in glass that has sat in front of the Harris County Courthouse in Houston, Texas for 47 years violates the separation of church and state and should be removed. A guy on death row for raping and murdering a waitress and seriously injuring a passerby who tried to save her wants his conviction thrown out because some of the jurors in the case cited Bible scriptures during their deliberation. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I are living witnesses to the dismantling of America's Christian heritage. It is taking place before our very eyes. It has been occurring for some 50 years, gradual chipping away at the foundations of American civilization. Even though for the first 185 years or so, American culture was friendly toward Christianity. In fact, around the world, America has actually been called and understood to be a Christian nation. But that is no longer the case. Sociologists refer to America as a post-Christian nation. 
Indeed, for the last 50 years, sinister forces have been operating in our civilization from pluralism, atheism, evolution, liberalism, political correctness, in an effort to wage an aggressive assault on the Christian religion. In fact, they have succeeded in dismantling many of the moral and spiritual principles that once characterized American society. Indeed, our religious, our moral, and our spiritual foundation is literally disintegrating. We are, in fact, in a culture war, folks, that's far greater than the Iraq War or any other physical conflict on this planet. And make no mistake about it, whatever the surface issues may be, this war comes down essentially to one issue. Whether or not the United States of America is going to continue to acknowledge the one true God of the Bible. That's what this is about. That's what all of the hubbub and furor generated by the ACLU is about and all other forces that are attempting to eradicate Christianity. This is about whether or not God is going to be permitted to hold the place that he has held from the very beginning of our nation. These forces, social and political liberals, from the left coast, Hollywood, through the university system of this country, all the way to our nation's capital with liberal politicians, are now openly, I mean vociferously, hostile toward the God of the Bible. They're coming out in the open and making no bones about it. And I would suggest to you that it is in the midst of this terrible social chaos that churches of Christ are facing the most perilous times we have ever faced in the history of this nation. Because every effort is being made to eradicate all public references to God and Christianity. Do you know you cannot live the Christian life without being public about it? So we are living in perilous times. Liberal historians, activist judges are in the process of rewriting our history and rewriting our laws. They are claiming that all religions ought to be tolerated as equal. Christianity should not be given any sort of public expression above any other religion or for that matter given any public expression at all. We're being told that these public expressions are offensive to those in American civilization that do not share our beliefs. Indeed, to even practice Christianity in a public way is immediately railed upon as individuals who are insensitive and uncaring and unthoughtful of other people. This conspiracy largely has been parading itself under the guise that it was in fact the intention of the Founding Fathers and the framers of the Constitution that there should not be any public references to God, Christ, and Christianity. This phrase, separation of church and state, that has been thrown around ad nauseum in our society for the last 40 to 50 years. We have been told that indeed what that means is there should not be any public references to Christianity. Certainly not in the government. Certainly not in the public school system. And certainly not in community public activities. Because of this attitude and the, the instances that I cited for you, we are seeing unbelievable decisions perpetrated upon our lives. I was in Montgomery, Alabama about a year and a half ago when the highest judicial authority of the state, the Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court, who had placed, simply placed a granite monument in the State Judiciary Building that had, among other things, the Ten Commandments, some references to the Declaration of Independence. You know, this Ten Commandments thing is making a lot of people crazy, especially politicians. Have you noticed that? I, I'm not sure why. I guess, I guess you shouldn't have thou shalt not lie in the presence of a lot of politicians. I don't know, maybe that's what upsets them. And we, we sure don't want to have thou shalt not commit adultery. 
But here was a state supreme court chief justice who was told by a federal judge, there's part of our problem, you cannot have that monument in, on public property. That's a violation of, the church, of church and state law. You know, while that was happening, in that state capital, do you know what was happening at the very same time in another state capital of this country, Sacramento, California? A war memorial dedicated to gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender war veterans was unveiled in Capitol Park on public property. Folks, that is a microcosm of what's taking place in our society right now. That is one little glimpse of a massive nationwide conspiracy to completely overturn American civilization. In many ways, our nation has been turned completely upside down on its head. You know, the city of Redlands, California has a state or a city seal. Many cities have seals. States have seals. Our federal government has a seal. Many of the seals of this nation go back far enough in our history that they have references to the Christian religion. For example, Redlands, California. You know, these seals simply indicate various aspects of their history, the forces that came together to bring these cities and, and states into existence, what's the problem? ACLU jumped them. You can't have that on such a visible public monument. You know, the Redlands, California people said, the city attorney said, we don't have the money to fight this thing. city doesn't have this kind of budget. So they just got tape and taped that up until they could eventually get it off their stationery and off of all of the seals around the city. Then the ACLU went after the county of Los Angeles because their seal has indications of their Christian roots. What is the ACLU going to do when they figure out what Los Angeles means? And, and Corpus Christi, Texas, body of Christ? Las Cruces, New Mexico, the crosses? How about San Marcos and San Antonio and San Francisco? Christianity and allusions to religious concepts associated with the Bible have so thoroughly permeated American civilization and though they have been chipping away at these for 50 years and have accomplished a lot, there are still many indications of America's original connection to God. Is it not the case that we have been told in the last 50 years the Constitution enjoins separation of church and state? Have we been told that or not? Haven't we been told that as a matter of fact the Founding Fathers set up a government with the deliberate intention of being accepting of all religions? That's pluralism. Isn't that what we've been told for 50 years? Haven't we been told that, it, as a matter of fact, the Founding Fathers were not particularly religious men? If anything, they were deists, which in today's definition is belief in a supreme being who was kind of the creator, but, you know, he kind of wound up the universe, stepped away from it, doesn't really have anything to do with it. The Founding Fathers certainly did not claim affiliation with Christianity. Haven't we been told that for 50 years? Haven't we been told that the Founding Fathers, in fact, opposed public expressions of the Christian religion, at least in public ways, especially with, in connection with the government and public schools? You know what Hitler said in his masterpiece of propaganda, Mein Kampf? He said, by means of shrewd lies, unremittingly repeated, it is possible to make people believe that heaven is hell and hell heaven. In fact, the greater the lie, the more readily it'll be believed. Another man said, it's easier to believe a lie that one has heard a thousand times than to believe a fact that no one has heard before. 
Americans are apparently disinterested in checking out the facts. Many of them are not even aware that separation of church and state, that phrase, and anything akin to it, is not in the Constitution. It was in a private piece of correspondence written by Thomas Jefferson when he was president. That's years after the beginning. And he was simply responding to a letter that had been written to him by a Baptist association that had become concerned about whether or not the government was going to interfere with the free and open practice of the Christian religion. Thomas Jefferson wrote the letter to assure them that's not going to happen. The government can't do that. Now that phrase is being used and interpreted to, me, to say the exact opposite of what it was originally intended to mean. Isn't it interesting that the current Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, it'll be sad when we lose him. He said that is a misleading metaphor and it ought to be abandoned. It does not represent constitutional law and he ought to know. Is it true? Is there any truth to any of this in the Constitution? Is there any truth to it in the lives of the founders? Can we go back and look at what they wrote, what they said, what they did? and determine whether or not the ACLU's right about this? And all of these federal judges, there's apparently a lot of them, that are perpetrating this concept. What does separation of church and state mean? Although that's not a constitutional concept, let's just go ahead and entertain it. What did Jefferson mean? What would the original people mean if they use such terminology? Would they mean by that we have got to keep God, Christ, the Bible, Christianity, religion out of public life? That's what they're saying it means. Or does the concept mean keep the government from interfering with the free and public exercise of the Christian religion. There's your two views. And if you've studied American history in the last 50 years, you would take number two on this. In fact, I was in Florida recently. A fellow that looked to be in his 20s who had minored in history said, Dave, this is a very different view of history that you have presented. I was in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. A girl came up to me, a woman who was raised in the California school district. She said, I never heard any of this stuff in history. And I was in Seattle a couple of weeks ago and a man came up to me who majored in history. He looked to be in his 40s. He said, I never heard any of this stuff. You would have to be probably World War II generation and before to believe, to know what I'm about to show you. Which of these two views is it? Do you know if we go back, instead of reading history books, and I would urge everyone in here, if you do any study of history, don't read any history book that's been written in the last 50 years. In fact, throw them out of your library, burn them. If you want to know what the founders believed, quit reading what people said they believed and go back and read what they said. Don't we need to do that with the Bible? I don't want to read what people say the Bible says. Let's go back to the original sources. What if we go back and find <laughs> that these men constantly spoke of God, Christ, Christianity, the Bible, quoted the Bible over and over and over? What would be the conclusion we ought to arrive at? All right, let me show you some of this evidence. Let's look at some government documents. These are public, government, federal documents. You recognize this one? I wonder if young people are made to read any of this material. I'm going to highlight some portions of this document. Two at the very beginning, two at the very end. Let me blow these up for you. Here is a reference to capital N, Nature's God, capital G, which if you go back and read the original sources, that's a very common expression, and what they meant by that was the God who created the natural order, nature's God. They're talking about the God of the Bible. And in just a breath or two later, they say that, you know, uh, humans are endowed 
by their evolutionary ancestors. No. By their creator, capital C, with certain inalienable rights. No question who they were talking about. The creator that you read about in Genesis chapter 1. As you come down toward the end of this document, they refer to the supreme judge of the world. That's incredible. You don't find in this document them saying anything about the great beneficent being, the, the gracious God, although they do refer to him in those terms. But no, they pick out one attribute from the Creator and speak of him as judge. I looked into this to find out why. You know why? They believed that all human beings individually will stand before God at the end of time. Judgment. But they said nations won't. Nations are judged by God in history, in time. You ever read your Old Testament? That's a fact. God deals with nations, national entities, based upon their morality. These men knew that. They understood that what they were trying to do would either bring them into judgment or the nation from whom they were breaking away. And then they refer to divine providence, which again is a very common expression used in the 18th century to refer to the God of the Bible. Folks, here were 56 men who put their signatures to this document at peril of their lives. In fact, Franklin said, fellows, we'd better hang together or we will hang separately. And here is a political document that really launches the great American experiment. If you were writing such a document, if you had a reason to sit down with some other men and write out some political ideas about starting a new nation, would you bring your religion into it? Should someone be faulted? Would you think that a Christian who does not allude to Christ or God in an initial political document, would, would that necessarily mean that they were not very dedicated as, as, uh, in their religion? No, I wouldn't necessarily assume that. And yet here, in this initial political proclamation, these 56 men alluded to the God of the Bible four times, and this is not a long document. That's unbelievable. First president of these United States issued a thanksgiving proclamation in 1789. This proclamation is essentially a sermon. It could be preached from the pulpit on Sunday morning, and it would probably have more references to God than many sermons that are preached on Sunday morning in this country. For example, he says, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. Time out. <laughs> what if the President of the United States today got on nationwide TV, which nowadays, of course, uh, presidential statements broadcast to the world, and said, it is the duty of all nations on this planet to acknowledge the one true God. Talk about politically incorrect. He would offend most of the population of the world, let alone the country. And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer, can you imagine that? Congress instructing the president to instruct the population of America to be thankful to God and to pray to him. To be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November, next, to be devoted by the people of these states 
to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country, previous to this becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence in the course and conclusion of the late war, Revolutionary War, for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we've been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness. Look at this, folks. This whole proclamation is saying we've got to thank God for everything that's happened to us. We owe it all to God. For the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed, the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge, that we may then unite in most humbly uh, uh, offering our prayers, supplications, look at this, to the great Lord and ruler of nations, and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions. Can you imagine a president standing up and saying, okay, we, folks, we all need to pray that God will forgive this nation for our national transgressions, let alone our individual personal ones. Any politicians been doing that lately? To enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly, punctually, to render our national government a blessing to all the people. Don't you wish all of our politicians felt that obligation? By constantly being a government of wise, just, constitutional laws, discreetly, faithfully executed, obeyed, to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, such as have shown kindness to us, to bless them with good government, peace, and concord, to promote the knowledge and practice of what? True religion, which implies what? There's false religion. And virtue, that's their buzzword for morality, Christian morality. He's standing up and telling people they need to beg God to help us in the practice of Christian morality? Oh, that's common among these men. And generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows his bed. Did you see what I said? The whole thing is simply a reference to God. The whole thing. I doubt that this is ever brought forward in any public school in this country. Can't be. It's politically incorrect. You've heard about the assault upon the Pledge of Allegiance over the last several years. You know this was actually written in 1892, but guess what? Under God was not in the original Pledge of Allegiance. It was added 50 years ago last year by Congress. Now you think about that. The entire Congress of the United States in 1954 were so stupid, so ignorant, so uninformed about constitutional law that they injected under God into a pledge that's re that was required to be uttered by every public school child in the country. But now, lawyers and judges are more intelligent on these matters. You heard about the Supreme Court dealing with this issue one year ago, but they sidestepped it on a technicality. It's going to come up again because it's been coming up for several years. You know three of the justices, Rehnquist, Scalia, and Thomas, stepped up to the plate and said, all right, even though the court's throwing this out due to a technicality, we want to address the issue. And here's the issue. Is it unconstitutional to have under God in the Pledge of Allegiance? They said it is not. But if that court, which it's already tipped a little bit to the left, if it goes further, folks, we will continue to see a downward spiral of this nation. You're aware of the fact that every president that is elected to that high office has delivered an inaugural speech. You've probably seen it many times, haven't you? He takes the oath of office. And then he turns and addresses the nation. I have looked at every one of these speeches from the very beginning. 
Every single president of these United States has referred in his inaugural address to the God of the Bible. Even Bill Clinton did. Let me show you a few of them. Further back you go, the richer it is. Here was the first president. Such being the impressions under which I have an obedience to the public summons. Have you noticed how these fellows talk? They were educated. If you work for the public school system, no offense intended. The public school system of today is a far cry from what it was 200 years ago. In obedience to the public summons, repair to the present station, it would be peculiarly improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the people of the United States a government instituted by themselves for these essential purposes. In tendering this homage to the great author of every public and private good, I assure myself that it expresses your sentiments not less than my own nor those of my fellow citizens at large. Can you believe that? He says, you know, when I stop beginning, when I start my presidency by simply acknowledging God, I know good and well that I'm simply doing what the whole country agrees with. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Really? Washington is saying, out of all the nations on the earth, there is no nation on the planet who is in a position to understand who God is and what God can do for you than the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. The way America has gotten to this point sure appears to be because of God. Since we ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. Do you believe that? He did. Has the bulk of the American population of our day, has a sizable percentage disregarded, are we in the process as a nation of disregarding the rules, we don't even believe that, of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. Oh, that's exactly what's happening to America. Propitious smiles of heaven can't be expected on such a nation. Having thus imparted to you my sentiments as they have been awakened by this occasion, which brings us together, I shall take my present leave, but not without resorting once more to the benign parent of the human race in humble supplication that since he has been pleased to favor the American people with opportunities for deliberating in perfect tranquility, so his divine blessing may be equally conspicuous in the enlarged views, the temperate consultations, the wise measures on which the success of this government must depend. Second President, John Adams, 1797. Relying on the purity of their intentions, talking about those who preceded him, the justice of their cause, the integrity and intelligence of the people under an overruling providence which had so signally protected this country from the first. Listen to what these men are saying. These men are going out of their way to acknowledge God and to give him credit for the very existence of America. If I read my Old Testament correctly, nations who do that will be blessed. Those who don't will be destroyed. May that being who is supreme over all, the patron of order, the fountain of justice, the protector in all ages of the world of virtuous 
Liberty, stop right there. I constantly hear today about liberty, freedom, liberty, freedom. You know what that's, how that's been redefined in the last 50 years? Liberty is understood by the average American to be freedom from restraint. I can do what I want. These men frequently preface the word liberty, the liberty of, for which they, with, that they were involved founding. They refer to it as virtuous liberty. That is liberty that is lived and practiced based upon Christian morals. That's what they meant. Otherwise, it's no liberty. It will collapse. It will turn on itself. It's vicious. That's why they established a republic, not a democracy. They were against a democracy because in a democracy, the will of the people may one day say homosexuality is illegal, but now it's not. They would not have agreed with that. Freedom and representative form of government must be based upon, founded in, rooted in the Christian value system. You undercut that substructure, the superstructure will collapse. I'm going to prove that to you. That's, that was their belief. May he continue his blessing upon this nation and its government and give it all possible success and duration consistent with the ends of his providence. The next president, Thomas Jefferson, probably one of the least religious of the founding fathers. But look at what he talks about. Acknowledging and adoring and overruling providence, which by all its dispensations proves that it delights in the happiness of men here and is greater happiness hereafter. Pray tell, where's that? Thomas Jefferson believed in a hereafter. And that the hereafter, where you went in the hereafter, was determined by what happened here. That's a biblical worldview. With all these blessings, what more is necessary to make us a happy and prosperous people? And may that infinite power, which rules the destinies of the universe... Lead our counsels to what is best and give them a favorable issue for your peace and prosperity. Look what he said in his second inaugural address. I shall need to the favor of that being in whose hands we are, who led our forefathers as Israel of old from their native land, planted them in a country flowing with all the necessaries and comforts of life, who is covered... By the way, what's, what had Thomas Jefferson been reading there? knew his Bible better than many people who claim to be Christian know their Bible. Who's covered our infancy with his providence. That's the beginning. And our riper years with his wisdom and power. Did Thomas Jefferson believe that the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, had anything to do with the beginning of the nation and then the progress of the nation? That he will so enlighten the minds of your servants, guide their counsels, prosper their measures. All this is dependent on God. Unbelievable. Let's move down a little further, 1841, 35 years later. William Henry Harrison, I deem the present occasion sufficiently important and solemn to justify me in expressing to my fellow citizens a profound reverence for Islam. Don't mean to be offensive. That's just not what he said. Did these men believe in the God of the Bible? Yes. Did they believe in Christianity? Oh, yes. We've been told otherwise. But it's laced, it permeates, it riddles their utterances. And a thorough conviction, listen to this, that sound morals, religious liberty, and a just sense of religious responsibility are essentially connected with all true and lasting happiness. Not a word there about a sound economy, a strong military, and on and on. All the things that people today say, this is what's going to determine how our nation turns out. No, morality and religion, that's it. To that good being who has blessed us by the gifts of civil and religious freedom, who watched over and prospered the labors of our fathers, 
and has hitherto preserved to us institutions far exceeding in excellence those of any other people. How offensive can you get to the rest of the world? Let us unite in fervently commending every interest of our beloved country in all future time. Moving further down a few years. What's going on in 1861 in the United States? We're on the verge of internal civil war. Going to war with ourselves. He says, my countrymen, one and all, think calmly and well upon this whole subject. Nothing valuable can be lost by taking time. If there be an object to hurry any of you in hot haste and a step which you would never take deliberately, that object will be frustrated by taking time. No good object can be frustrated by it. Such of you as are now dissatisfied, that would be the slave states, right? Still have the old constitution unimpaired. He's saying, you know, the constitution was settled this, we'd all go by it. What Frederick Douglass, an escaped slave, called a glorious document of freedom, doesn't enjoin slavery. And on the sensitive point, the laws of your own framing under it, while the new administration will have no immediate power, if it would, to change either. If it were admitted that you were dissatisfied, uh, you who are dissatisfied hold the right side in this dispute. There's still no single good reason for precipitate action. Why? Because intelligence, patriotism, Christianity, and a firm reliance on him who has never yet forsaken this favored land are still competent to adjust in the best way all our present difficulty. Let's move down into the 20th century. Warren G. Harding. I'm, I assure you I'm not picking and choosing. They're all loaded with this stuff. He speaks, you know, they've just come out of World War I. Great Depression had not yet occurred. With the realization comes the surge of high resolve. There's a reassurance in belief in the God-given destiny of our republic. Here are a hundred millions with common concern, shared responsibility, answerable to God and country. The republic summons them to their duty. I accept my part with single-mindedness of purpose, humility of spirit, and implore the favor and guidance of God in his heaven. With these I am unafraid and I confidently face the future. I've taken the solemn oath of office on that passage of holy writ. You think he's talking about maybe the Quran? What does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God? That's from Micah. Quoting the Old Testament. This I plight to God and country. A little further down in history. Calvin Coolidge, 1925. Here stands our country, example of tranquility at home, patron of tranquility abroad. Here stands its government, aware of its might, but obedient to its conscience. Here it will continue to stand, seeking peace and prosperity. Then he mentions several things that were big at this point in history, including uh, womanhood, what was going on in the 20s, suffrage. Desiring the advancement of religion, supporting the cause of justice, honor among the nations. America seeks no earthly empire built on blood and force. Are we being told that today? Oh yeah, you're in Iraq, you know, you're, you're trying to, you're an aggressor nation. Well, whether you think we ought to be there or not is irrelevant. My point is, that's a lie. America's had the military might if there were no God. Don't you think we could have pretty much taken over the world? The Roman Empire pretty much did it. Alexander pretty much did it. The British Empire pretty much did it. We sure could have done it. But we haven't. Why? Because this has been a Christian nation. And that's the only reason. The Christianity practiced in Europe has been corrupted for centuries. Not that it has, doesn't have corruption here, but it was closer. He says the legions which she sends forth are not armed, are armed not with the sword, but with the cross, which you cannot display publicly anymore. The higher state to which she seeks the allegiance of all mankind is not of human, but of divine origin. She cherishes no purpose save to merit the favor of Almighty God. Can you believe these presidents talk this way? in public settings. 
Every single president refers to the God of the Bible. Let me give you a few more quotations. <clears throat> just a smattering because there's so many. We'd be here forever. If we could just strip our public schools of pretty much everything they're studying now <laughs> and just go back and get the founding documents, bring them in, let the kids sit there and read them. We could almost turn this nation around. The number one public school textbook, of course, in America from the beginning was the Bible. I'm going to prove that to you too. And the early textbooks filled with the Bible. By the way, what is a founding father? Here's the technical definition. One of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, one of the first 14 presidents, beginning with the presidents of the Continental Congress that preceded Washington, all of these very involved in launching the nation. Military leaders never signed a document, but they fought for independence, involved, they're considered uh, founding fathers. The 55 delegates of the Constitutional Convention, you know the the fellows that signed the Constitution were not the same fellows that signed the Declaration, maybe with the exception of seven or eight that did both. Different set of men. Ninety members of the first Congress would surely qualify. First U.S. Supreme Court would be founding fathers and the presidential cabinets of the two terms of Washington. Roughly 250 individuals. Wish we had time to kind of do a biography of all of them. You would be blown away in terms of their religious and moral orientation. Remember Patrick Henry? What's he known for? What? Give me liberty or give me death. Is that all you know about him? Yes, because they wouldn't dare show you what else he said on that occasion. No way, no way. This was about a year or so before the Declaration of Independence. He was a member of the Virginia State Convention who was meeting in a church building <laughs> to discuss the, their political concerns and the tyranny of, of uh, the crown, Britain. He was 39 years old, took a seat on the third pew, listened to all of the supporters of loyalty to the king. Then he got up and here's what he said. Again, you won't believe... <laughs> the Bible orientation of this speech. No man thinks more highly than I do of the patriotism as well as the abilities of the very worthy gentlemen who have just addressed the house. But different men often see the same subject in different lights. Therefore, I hope not to be thought disrespectful to those gentlemen if entertaining as I do opinions of a character very opposite of theirs. I shall speak forth my sentiments freely and without reserve. This is no time for ceremony. The question before the house is one of awful moment to this country. For my own part, I consider it nothing less than a question of freedom or slavery. And in proportion to the magnitude of the subject ought to be the freedom of the debate. It is only in this way that we can hope to arrive at truth and fulfill the great responsibility which we hold to God and country. Should I keep back my opinions at such a time through fear of giving offense, I should consider myself as guilty of treason towards my country and of an act of disloyalty toward the majesty of heaven, which I revere above all earthly kings. Mr. President's natural demand to indulge in the illusions of hope. We're apt to shut our eyes against the painful truth and listen to the song of that siren till she transforms us into beasts. Is this the part of wise men engaged in a great and arduous struggle for liberty? Are we disposed to be of the number of those who... Having eyes see not and having ears hear not. Anybody recognize that? Mark chapter 8. The things which so nearly concern their temporal salvation, for my part, whatever anguish of spirit it may cost, I'm willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, to provide for it. I've got one lamp by which my feet are guided. That's the lamp experience. I know of no way of judging the future, but by the past, judging by the past, I wish to know what there has been in the conduct of the British ministry for the last ten years to justify these hopes with which gentlemen have been pleased to solace themselves and the house. Is it that insidious smile with which our petition has been lately received? You know, they were constantly petitioning the crown. Do you know what they kept bugging them about? Things like, you know, you've heard a lot of this, taxation without representation and all that. That's not all. For example, did you know they've repeatedly hounded the government of England to stop slavery? 
Did you know that? Oh, no, all the founding fathers are a bunch of racists. That's what we've been told for 50 years. It was actually in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence. Trust it not, sir. It will prove a snare to your feet. Suffer not yourselves. By the way, snare to your feet, that sound familiar? Common metaphor in the, in the Old Testament. Suffer not yourselves to be betrayed with a kiss. Where'd that come from? Are you counting these? Ask yourselves how this glorious reception of our petition comports with those warlike preparations which cover our waters. I ask, gentlemen, sir, what means this martial army if its purpose be not to force us to submission? They're meant for us. They can be meant for no other. I'm kind of skipping down through this. Look what else he says here. No longer any room for hope. We must fight and appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left. You know what God of hosts is? Technical expression in the Old Testament referring to God in his military might. Until our enemies have bound us hand and foot. John chapter 11. So we're not weak if we make a proper use of our means which the God of nature has placed in our power. There's that expression. The God that created nature. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations. This thing's riddled with references to God and scripture quotations. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 9. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. That's Jeremiah chapter 6. The war has actually begun. The, the next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? That's a reference to Matthew chapter 20 and verse 6. What is it that gentlemen wish? What will they have? Is life so dear, peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty, give me death. There's the part you've heard. You can't put the rest of it in the public school because it quotes the Bible and alludes to God constantly. There's more scripture in this political speech than many sermons preached from pulpits all over the country. I tell you, we're in trouble. 